0: Now pop no style. I strictly roots. Nah pop no style. I'll strictly roots. Give me a little bit smoke my wine up my waist. Up down top ranking.
1: Hey everyone, this is Marcel. And this is Isabel, and you are now listening to the Top Rank Podcast.
0: It's, you know, been a few months uh, since we've been at this, but we're back to close out the year. And for any new listeners out there, the Top Rank podcast is an exploratory research platform centered on people of diverse backgrounds who are
1: driving, shaping and challenging their fields and the world around them. In the almost five years that Marcel and I have been making this podcast together, I think this is about to actually be one of our most exciting episodes that we've produced, as we are welcoming a personal hero of both of ours, a trailblazing designer, entrepreneur, and thinker, who in the past three decades has been instrumental in the shaping of the industry and aesthetic category that we now all refer to as streetwear.
0: Some of you likely already know, Isabel and I are working on a book about nameplate jewelry called Documenting the Nameplate, which was actually born from the very first episode of this show. And so last winter, right before all the COVID stuff kind of popped off and <laughs> transformed our lives forever, uh, we were invited to um, Really, I'm really excited about this. We're invited to serve on the advisory committee of a forthcoming exhibition at the museum at the Fashion Institute of Technology that's gonna be about the, hip, the history of hip hop style. And obviously, you know, it came as utterly no surprise that April Walker, founder of Walkerware and our guest today, who we're so excited to speak to, was also serving on that committee as well. Um, and so that really gave us the energy and and um, excitement to invite her to be on the show, to to learn from her experiences and just um, get more of a sense of, of, of you know where she's been and where she's going um, with her trailblazing work. So without further ado, April Walker, thank you so much for being here with us tonight all via virtually. Thank
2: you for having me. I'm excited and I'm happy I was able to, we were able to connect.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, us too. Um, So we're, I'm going to start off, as I had mentioned, um, we have some questions, but of course we can talk about sort of whatever crosses the path of this conversation. Um, But I, but I think it would be nice to start off talking a little bit about your early life and specifically about what your personal style was like growing up and who or what influenced your relationship to dress in such a way that, that, that steered you into having a career in fashion?
2: Uh, so I'll start with my personal style growing up. I grew up, my father was in the music industry and I grew up as a jazz baby. So, um, so jazz musicians and Um, jazz enthusiasts usually have a certain style and it's it's different it's very it's very expressive and it's very um you you know it's funny I can tell when someone's into jazz sometimes by the way they dress and my father was that but he always had I guess another edge to him because he's just an artist himself like by nature and he managed these jazz artists. So then he, the fluidity from that went to R&B and he started working with R&B artists like D-Train. And, you know, he did some work with jazz and Jay-Z and and into hip hop. So I think his um, expression was always, you know, I watched him go from a hippie stage to other stages to other, and my mom was the opposite. She was always just really, uh, I want to say reserved, but super fly super classy and super like, she comes from Colorado. So a lot of her things to me were like, she loved outdoor outfits, like outdoorsy stuff. And then she also loved, um, indigenous uh, like uh, flavor like you could just see it in in my mom is, is uh, Mexican American all of that flavor you know so I was I was really like I had a pretty broad palate very early on and let's just talk about Brooklyn I come from Brooklyn so growing up and watching those, you know, the seventies and then the eighties going into the crack era, you know, and then the nineties going into the golden age of hip hop, you know, the the golden era. It was just basically for me, like the commercialization of hip hop, just watching all of it happen in New York city, New York city was a melting pot pot in itself for culture and for, you know, music, art, fashion, and all things that were the, cool like like that was just happening authentically so that was literally all the influences that helped me to be able to kind of step out on the ledge and just dress like I felt so you know they say fashion is the best form of drag and it really is true because it's really like a uniform on how you feel that day and so for me it literally became that like and and I fell in love with hip hop early on like when it was really forming so you know that became my anti-establishment factor so to speak and I expressed it through fashion so you know my style very very early I remember I used to wear the lead jeans and have the permanent seams down the the, the middle and I would have these two big big long ponytails with like big fuchsia ribbons in my hair and Lee suits, you know, with the raw denim and shell toes and Azad, like a pink Izod shirt, or I would wear uh, Oshkosh jumpers and, you know, and Sassoon from, you know, and penny loafers were big when I was a teenager early on. And then You know, and then I got into suede front Pumas and and shell toes and, you know, and and all kinds of sneakers that I just fell in love with. So for me, it just was about, you the different periods brought different things for me and different ideas and, and I, and uh, yeah, I just, I used fashion to express how I felt, but you know, that was just a little taste of, you know, depending on the day, how I felt, I saw those outfits, so those, that's why I described them.
0: Yeah, it seems like you you grew up with such an eclectic mix you know, of influ- influences artistically, creatively, and also being, you know, from New York City. I could just, me as well, like that's, it's just such a hub for so much creativity and vibrancy when it comes to fashion and the arts especially. And so I guess you had, you kind of grew up with this, with this passion, this exposure. What made you decide to like, turn this into like a business. I know that Dapper, you cite Dapper Dan a lot and his um, legacy as being a a really big inspiration for you. But can you tell us more about like why you decided to get into the fashion industry, uh, particularly with your custom clothing store, fashion in effect, I believe it was called, right?
2: right? So at Fashion, and effect, the reason I wanted to start it was, well, to be honest, I knew I didn't want to work for someone else early on when I was in college, but I didn't know what I was going to do. I went to school for business and communications. I thought I would be in television production of some sort. And then I walked into Dapper Dan's place, and he was the first image I saw of someone that looked like my tribe that was in there hustling and doing it well with with clothing but it was speaking to our own tribe that was there and weren't you know and we weren't being serviced like at that point i was wearing calvin klein sassoon these brands but there was nothing and i couldn't walk in any retail store and purchase something that represented who we are or the heart of how we felt so I got it right there in my mind. And I was like, I want to create for my own tribe. And at that time, Brooklyn was very different than Harlem or any other place, you know, and boroughs, you could tell who was from where Queens, that Island, by the way, someone dressed literally. So I really wanted to focus on um, hip hop and making just not just hip hop, because we made Couture. We made everything from Easter outfits to, you know, gowns and tuxedos at Fashion and Effect. But we also did start making our own uh, outfits, and 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 a lot of that was velour and playing with different fabrications. But the whole premise and the whole inspiration for me starting Fashion and Effect was wanted to speak to my tribe that wasn't being i knew that there was i I, it was an aha moment of understanding like this wave is coming and it's not a trend hip-hop is going to be here to last and you know we need fashion we were already like wearing our own wearing we buy something in the stores and then we can't come home and we bling bling it out we basically bleach it or you know buy two sizes too big so I wanted to make something ready to wear that was just original you know and you couldn't find that in the store so that's how it started really addressing a need that we weren't it was a void in the marketplace and we weren't being serviced
0: sorry I I was like curious because you I to like paint a picture of like what New York style was at the time because you said this really intriguing thing about how you could tell someone was from Harlem or from Queens or from Staten Island or from Brooklyn like what were those what were those parts of people's personal styles that were like served to these like borough these like geographic I guess like markers of where people were from
2: I like for me it was uh, about like someone from Brooklyn was less uh, flashy than someone from Harlem like I could see right now leather goose with some Timberlands and some some jeans um, and some gazelles with somebody from Brooklyn and I could see somebody with a, a fur on um, uh, in in Harlem with a lot of truck jewelry and you know a velour sweatsuit you know and some valleys you know or some sneakers you know um, I could, you know, it was just it. it there were certain things that like, you you know, you could just tell that person wasn't from here. Or that person was from there. And the, like, those were two examples.
0: Did you spend any time going to like the Albee Square Mall?
2: Yep. I knew. Coming I from Brooklyn? Yep. I used to shop there. I used to hang there. Yep. I knew it well. They had a that's, game room in the basement. The whole nine.
0: That's where I got my ears pierced <laughs> and also witnessed my first armed robbery. <laughs>
2: yeah as a uh, child yep it it was rough there I remember I had a boyfriend that got uh, 27 stitches cut right in front of Albee Square Mall I know that mall well
0: that's such an iconic place anyway yeah I was just curious to get that paint that paint paint that picture but you did it so vividly so it's I'll toss it over to you sorry (laughs) I
1: love I love all these details it's it's really helping to to visualize I mean I and I'm really um intrigued about the importance of customization, you were saying that, um, you know, part of the, part of the ethos of hip-hop is to take something and, and make it your own, your own style, whether that means, you know, bedazzling something you bought or buy a larger size or, or what have you. And that, I think, is actually a big part of our, of the focus of our project with the nameplate jewelry as well, because it's obviously so rooted in having something unique. But, um, so I love hearing about that, but then a few years later, because you started fashion in effect, if I'm correct, in 87. So then a few years later in the early nineties, you actually transitioned to create your own ready to wear line, which is, you know, the famous um, walker wear. So we'd also like to hear like, what prompted you to make that transition? And um, also like what, what made you decide to create a menswear line and what was it like to do that at the time, um, you know, as a woman as well?
2: Okay, two things. So I started with the men's wear line because of a few things. I had a lot more support at fashion in effect with men. Women definitely came through, but it was the men that really were already coming to the store for a lot more, giving me a lot more business. And so I focused on that when I saw that that's where the support was. A secondary factor was the fact that women are a lot tougher as critics when it comes to clothing because (laughs) we want things that fit our bodies and accentuate our, our shapes. And me starting out in fashion at 21, I had not mastered that part and I was very clear. So I knew I had a lot more um, men would be more forgiving because I could be a little, if I was off a little bit in the pattern starting out or whatever, I had a little more wiggle room, no pun intended, (laughs) you know? So I started there because I really thought like it would have been smarter. It was just a business decision, to be honest. And then, um, and then the tribe was there. I had more of a demand because more men were supporting. So I, Those were two things that made me see and then hip hop itself if we look at the palette of the music, it was all pretty much men at that time that were dominating um, and coming up in the commercialization of hip hop like meaning mainstream think about LL Cool J Public Enemy, you know that was the time in the 80s audio Two, you know Biggie Smalls and it was just in the beginning stages and it was definitely male dominated. So I was speaking to what I felt and saw and and thought would be a market at that moment.
0: Yeah, I guess just speaking more to like the business, like what did what was it like I guess being a startup, like a new company in the fashion industry at that time? Like what what were some of the challenges that you that you faced in kind of doing this um on your own essentially
2: i think one of the first and main challenges was not having a mentor or a blueprint because this was literally being built out so there was no category there was no no There wasn't any label on it it wasn't called streetwear yet it wasn't called urban fashion or anything it was just believing in hip-hop and seeing it and having faith in creating clothes so when you created them and you started selling them the consumer themselves felt it but when you tried to take it to wholesale and start selling other retailers they didn't get it yet because they followed a formula that was already proven so They didn't understand what hip hop was and many retailers then um, were afraid of it and thought that it was something that wouldn't last and it was going to go away. So I heard that a lot. And so why Mm -hmm. should I pay your prices? Why do you cost the same prices as Fila? Um, You know, all of those things. Also being a woman, being um, the first woman and the only woman in the very beginning, you know, in an all men's business presented its own set of challenges being very young being to be taken serious and then for my voice to be heard. And then to receive those opportunities that, you know, just like the world at that moment, you know, it was a boys club so literally learning how to dance in the middle of a boys club was difficult. And then the last obstacle would have been financing, you know. Starting a new market, starting in in the middle of hip hop, you know, the industry was not really ready for or so receptive to it in the beginning. So, you know, financial backing, backers um, and financing and lack of financing, lack of funding, all of those things played a part in obstacles, challenges and invisible hurdles that we had to overcome.
0: Yes, yeah, so much resilience and like really having to believe in yourself. Like what were I'm always curious when i when I like, you know speak with friends or meet meet people like yourself who have been like entrepreneurs and have like taken that leap to start their own venture. Like I guess in your case, like was there any particular like a memorable moment or encounter or situation that you came across that really like, gave you more like confidence in yourself that, you know, actually I can, I can really do this. Like a really, like a challenge that you faced that, that really, I guess, like turned, turned things around for you and gave you that extra push to keep, to keep going in spite of what seems like so much was really against, against you, especially being an innovator in this space.
2: You know, I can't think of one moment. I think of several many micro moments that, you know, look, you fall down 10 times, you get up 11. That's what I was raised on. And so I think it was more of that grit. Mm. It wasn't like um, one big thing that happened that I had to, I had to overcome a lot of big things. And it was literally once you push through something and you realize you made it through, it gave you more confidence to keep going. Because if you could go through it, and grow through it, then sky is the limit, like I'm unstoppable, you know, that like me being naive to fear was definitely an enabler for my business and for my life, you know, so I'm just thankful to God to have had that strand in my DNA, you know, because I would have given up a long time ago if I didn't.
0: I love that phrase, naive to fear. I was going to say the same thing. Write that down, so That should like be on a shirt or something. <laughs> That's a really good one. Um, yeah, Isabel, I I know that because in our friendship too, we've connected a lot over, of course, like jewelry, like nameplate jewelry, like clothes. Clearly, like you're you spoke of being and and you are like an innovator in the category of streetwear, and so Isabel and I have been talking about that and. I guess wanted to, I mean, Isabel, you could take this this question. Um, sure. Since you're, the, you're actually more of the expert on streetwear, Isabel, than I am. I've learned so much from you about like this industry and where it's been and like where it's going, so. Oh,
1: wow. I try to avoid the word expert in any context, but thank you, Marcy. Got to big um, you up. Well, I guess, yeah. I mean, one of the questions that we had for you was particular to this term. I mean, it's fascinating to hear how, people met hip hop with suspicion at that time but I mean obviously like looking back on that now it's crazy to think about it considering that it's probably like the most universal culture cultural touch point that we have at the moment Mm -hmm. um but for the for the idea of streetwear, what does that term mean to you now um and do you How do you feel like this category has emerged or evolved, you know, in the past three, almost four decades that you've been observing it?
2: I mean, I think everything is labels, and it's about whether you're going to own them or not. You know, I think in the beginning, I watched it go from streetwear to become urban fashion to go back to streetwear, you know. And I think it's just the difference of who's wearing it and who's the customer. And that's where it gets the coding of these labels. So, you know, myself, I don't limit myself. I'm I'm creative. Like people don't even know I started from couture and custom. And, you know, I did gowns and tuxes and, you know, all this other world of suits and you know, I used to dress a lot of the NBA players in suits and in tropical wools and all these pinstripe suits, and you know, I just like creating. But yeah, I take streetwear and put pride to it in the sense of being a trailblazer for it. Um, it's a double-edged sword though, because a lot of times you get pigeonholed and it's stereotype, you know, that goes with that. Um, but you know. I don't do it for the industry. I do it for the culture. So I don't really trip too much off of labels, if that makes sense. Um, And yeah, I mean, I can create, I can paint on this wall or that wall. That's what I'm saying. So (laughs) it doesn't really matter to me, you know, but I get it. And I think how it's grown, it's become diluted in my, my opinion. It's become pop culture, just like hip hop has become hip hop you know so it's really like being still in that undercurrent and it's like a weird place to be but i feel like i've always been there so to speak because you know you love what you do and you love to create but you know it's always a tug of war because the industry itself is will cannibalize itself if if you it has already you know in a lot of senses but you know it will implode if you if it doesn't keep some kind of integrity to it and I think we have seen that with the world itself so yeah it's interesting
1: yeah I I think that definitely makes a lot of sense I've always thought like the the use of the term like as you said the way it shifted and also the way the term is kind of flattened now because I feel like um streetwear the way we think of it has multiple origin points you know like on the one hand there's there's a a west coast um surf and skating inspired flavor of like a stussy and a fucked but then you also have the alternate parallel hip-hop informed brands that came a little earlier like walk away and i mean i was thinking like at the time when you were starting this you know in the early 90s what other Peer streetwear brands were you looking to or like admiring, if there were any at that time? Like, like what was your reference point for what you, for what you personally were doing?
2: There was Dapper Dan, and then there was Miguel Navarro. He's not with us anymore, but he was a very um, talented designer out of Brooklyn. Uh, he was Latino, and he was uh, really close with me. He lived in Flatbush, and he had a studio in Flatbush, and he made clothes for everybody too and we did a fashion show together um, myself him and play from kid and play kid and play was also had a clothing line line and um gerard had a clothing line that he started they started after me and they came a few times called school of hard knocks oh yeah Yep. and we did a fashion show playing myself and um miguel at studio 54 early on and then there was Carl Williams, aka Carl Cannai. He had a he had a, a tailor shop in Flatbush when I had my shop in on uh, fashion and effect. And then he left to LA to try to figure it out. And and that's when he started Carl Cannai. Um and Carl Cannai was already actually here. He was doing it out of his shop, actually, the same way I was transitioning. But he he um, he was he used to do these ads and these commercials and they would be in Word Up magazine and they would actually be at the end of the magazine and it would be showing his outfits. And he used to have Scoob and Scrap from um, Big Daddy Kane, the dancers, and they would be wearing his outfits and it would be like 1-800, whatever the number was, like if you wanted to get from Carl Kanae. And so, <laughs> You know, those are the ones I really remember in the very, and Maurice Malone out of Detroit hip hop. Yeah, he was, he was an early, early settler. I remember doing a show with him um, for BET. We did a talk show and this had to be like maybe 90. And it was, um, it was very early on. And that's when I saw his jeans and. Um, he'd been around in the eighties. I just didn't know him, you know, and he was out of Detroit, but we got to talking. And then there was also Camilla Elk out of, out of, uh, um, lower East side, triple five. So she came right after me. I remember doing a sneak. She doesn't know this, but she'll probably know eventually. Cause I think I've told this story a few times now, but I remember I was making clothes at this time for Jam Master J and my, um my um, other right hand, Cola, who worked with me, we decided, we heard there was somebody on the Lower East Side who opened. So we said, let's go see what she's doing. And we act like we were customers. And we went in there and we checked out her shop, but we already had fashion in effect. So um, yeah, those were the beginning people that I remember. And PNB Nation, I found out later that they were early on and they were paving their way as graffiti artists. And then they started making teas very early. I didn't know about them to the early 90s, but I think they were pivoting in the late 80s as well.
0: Wow. I <laughs> it's just getting a lay of the land of like who who else was doing this work at the time is really interesting. You had mentioned you had mentioned a point earlier that I, I wanted to I wanted to kind of go back to and we were talking a bit about some of the challenges that you faced early on one of those many being you know dealing with um like retailers and and folks of that nature um who you would have said something to them and correct me if i'm wrong that there were perhaps certain perceptions of the customers that were going to be purchasing um your clothes that might have impacted how different retailers their own preconceptions of like who is valuable who's not mm-hmm. um Did you, I I guess first, did I like catch that correctly? And if I did, could you speak more about that in terms of maybe some of the like biases that you faced in terms of like who your customer base was and how they were perceived by retailers and distributors and things like that?
2: Sure. Um, And before I do, I'm going to shout out Shirt Kings too because they were around and they were definitely legendary out of the Coliseum in Queens and they did, a lot of airbrushing and artwork on shows that were just amazing mm-hmm. um but to your point yeah it just was like the same way people were afraid of hip-hop or a young black guy or you know especially once we started like really expressing ourselves through music and you had nwa and public enemy and you know people saying can i curse on it
1: Yeah. Of (laughs) course. Most definitely.
2: Right. People saying fuck the police and, you know, and, you know, um, you know, um, bitches with problems and all these um, artists coming out expressing the way they felt and it was raw and it was something we'd never seen. I think that hip hop was just different at that time. So different and so abrasive in a good way. But, they weren't ready. They weren't ready. And, and, and so yes, it was, there was a lot of, um, a lot of pushback because they were afraid of these customers, but they still wanted your money. You know what I mean? It's just, um, you know, what came with that. So it was really weird to watch it evolve because it, it was just like, I feel like, it's like every other industry to be honest it's like we want you but we don't you know that's really saying we want your money but we don't But keep your distance and how do you do that like but the only way you can do that is by oppressing somebody
0: Right, that's so true. It's just like who's considered who's considered valuable. It's almost like I feel like it's so at the core of American culture. This like that's dual it. like yeah, fascination and of, you know. obsession, love with the right. things that Black and people of color produce, but yeah. this like exploitation and and, so, um, and
2: it's appropriation and it's you know creative looting. And it's um, you know, the gatekeepers keeping you at bay with invisible challenges, and you know, it's also selective ignorance, you know. So it's it's really hard, and it gets tiring, tiring, tiring.
1: Yeah, this actually sort of uh, brings us nicely into wanting to talk about this really amazing article that you wrote over the summer on Medium, um, which. I think really like put into words, a lot of things that, that Marcel and I had actually talked about. Um, so it was really enjoyable to, to, to read, but this piece for anyone who's listening, who hasn't read it, and I encourage you to, um, reflects on on basically just the unacceptable fact that despite the you know tremendous impact of black and brown creatives on the streetwear industry and, and on fashion in general, that there remains this extreme lack of equity while ideas and content are still, as you said, looted by bigger brands. So, in this piece, you also criticize the elitism that's entrenched in the industry and um, the way that oppressive structures and these and social confines just reinforce um, these same problems. So, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, you're known, I think, for your fearlessness, as you said, and um, just the tremendousness of your vision. So, how have you encountered and interacted with these challenges or um and how did the and how do you feel like they potentially have affected your career
2: well i think that we make choices so you know i was intentional with my choices and and i wasn't naive to think that making certain choices would might have a different outcome but i've always been of the mindset that it's more important for me to be able to sleep good at night than to just make money, you know? So, you know, so that that that, that was always my North Star, so starting there. And also, I've always been a community-based person. I grew up in first grade. I went to a school called Uhuru Sasa that was um, actually a Black nationalist school, but it also taught you about ujama and a lot of the principles there so you know and i do believe that lateral cooperation creates vertical movement so i think that we're independent but interdependent and we need each other so you know that's always been my mindset and living in a capitalist society much less the fashion industry which is definitely not rocket science though we treat it like it is you know um it's 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 hard sometimes because um, the, the, the thought of you needing to be the only one or the one that stands out and shine the most, and you don't want anyone else sitting at your table. That's almost how the fashion industry is sold, you know, which creates a disconnect and it also creates a very competitive atmosphere. And an almost atmosphere of step on who you need to step on in order to get where you need to get. Um, and so, you know, that's difficult because it's just against principles that we 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 believe in, you know. And so, yeah, I think that um, I've faced a lot of challenges financially. I know that I haven't got as a woman, let's just say, as a Mexican woman, I know I the doors haven't opened for me that have opened for others because i don't i don't um a look like the masses in the fashion industry and b i think we normally we normally gravitate to tribe you know so i don't even know if it's about that as much as it's about we're comfortable with our tribe that's what you realize And unless you're willing to push the boundaries and come out of your comfort zone to extend your tribe to something that you might not be used to and learn about others, it's difficult to let others into your circle. And I think that if anything, 2020 has taught us to expand our circles, you know, um, hopefully, you know, we can be gentle with each other going forward. But the fashion industry was definitely one of those categories and one of those industries that's very elite, that's very much, you have to look like this, you have to walk like this, you have to, you know, typically when I came up, I'm watching it change now. I'm seeing the fashion industry become more tolerant of sizing and and, and, and real sizes and people that, you know, on the whole, they look like real people. You know, we're starting to see it. And we're starting to see those changes. We're starting to see different complexions, things that I never saw before in my life. Now I'm watching and I'm I'm seeing. Yeah, I saw supermodels on covers, but you know, I didn't see a lot of people walking down the runway when I grew up unless we put it on the fashion shows ourselves you know so I think things are changing behind the scenes and in front of them but when I grew up yeah I can remember um, several times having to walk away from deals because um, one thing was presented in front of me and then at the last minute it was changed I remember um, a situation that was unfortunate where I had to deal with Um, a a licensing bill went by because they didn't keep their word in the licensing deal and it was a mess you know and it was always men at the helm trying to put your foot on the neck like take this deal or else you know (laughs) at that moment but it also was great lessons you know and I and and in all honesty and reflection some of those moments um, with better due diligence wouldn't have happened and then some of them would have happened anyway and they weren't meant to be, that's how I look at them. But yeah, I think that, you know, everything has been experienced, but most of it has been the obstacles were broader and they were deeper than just myself in that experience. It was just time, it was just the culture and it was just fashion industry standards at that time for standards that need to change. You know, if we look at how many brown and black people of color are in the industry and how many people are executives in the industry, um, and then how many black and brown executives are in the industry. At the top, making those decisions, you can see how much the fashion industry needs to change.
0: Your article, yeah, I mean, to that point, you really astutely point out that, you know, there there seems to be these momentary celebrations of, you know, one or two people um, getting into these, like a very elite, um, roles business roles in the fashion industry these have like individualized achievements that in your in your piece you you talk about how these kind of one-off appointments really obscure the deep meaningful like structural transformation that has to occur in order to make things um better um and so in your piece you you bring up actually two concrete um Ways forward. And I think one of them, both of them really speak to this. I what I feel like I've learned so much more about you through this conversation is like your emphasis on tribe and like community and like the collective, which is in a lot of ways, we're trained in this in our culture, I feel like to be so hyper-competitive, so hyper-individualistic, like collaboration is not the way to go. But you talk about Um, collective work and cooperative economics as like two possible like tangible ways forward and I guess we wanted to um, hear more about your thoughts on that in terms of how these principles can be applied in the fashion industry.
2: Yeah I think that can be applied in any industry that's the beauty of it and I think that we've been sold this fake bill of goods that we have to be the only one in the room where we have to be the the best in, in terms of and we're not all a hey, let's get rid of that. We we can be the best that we can be in the fullest versions of ourselves. But somebody's going to be number 1 and somebody's going to be 1001 and that's okay. You know everyone has a place. And I think that we don't all need to compete. Some of us can build with each other and and I think that there's healthy competition, you know, you can have your own brand and I can have my own brand, but how powerful let, let's, let, let me give you the theory. So I came up in a time when you were taught, like, you're always supposed to wear your stuff and you're always supposed to be marketing yourself. It's, it's just a marketing principle we're taught, right? Like it's a no, no to do an interview and have on someone else's stuff right and it's a no no to do this you're always in alignment and pushing your brand and to a large degree that's smart and that's true but at this time I feel it's time to dismantle a lot of the things that we've learned because it's 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 corrupt capitalism and it's 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 ways to keep us um apart and disconnected and i think we would be much more powerful together so one of the things i do is like i'll wear someone else's stuff and do a post on them and talk about them and celebrate them and say this is why you should you know this person is here and you know, they make great goods and, you know, I, I will collaborate with another designer to show like lateral cooperation can create, if I have a platform and I have a lot of eyes on me and I see this sister or this, this uh, brother over here and they have a great brand, but they might not have as much, um, you know, visibility, I'm going to use my platform to try to lift them up. Like, why not? Like, because we're stronger together, you know? And I just want them to pay it forward and do something for the next one. Because the more we do that within our communities, the more we strengthen our communities and the more we help level the ecosystem into a healthy ecosystem, into a global ecosystem, if more communities are doing that. Like, if you become empowered, then you can empower someone else you know, but we have to do that together. You know, it's the only way we can, and we can't look for others to fix our problems. We have everything we need because we are the most creative people and all our ideas are always stolen because we're giving them away and we're thinking that their ice is colder. And I'm saying, no, it's not, like it's right here. The platinum, the gold, all of it is right here. Let's just share it. That's, That's all I'm saying. Just like everyone else shares in their communities, let's do that in our own communities. Because once we do that, we can start the healing in our own communities. And, you know, I think we're stronger together and we have a lot more um, strength, strength to do whatever we want to do. I don't know. Did, did I answer your question? Did I make sense?
1: Yeah, definitely. Of that made all the sense that it's it's like very powerful to hear this being spoken about, especially right now. And I think like it's really something that we that everyone, you know, every person needs to address the way that the like economic system of neoliberalism affects how we treat each other and the yeah. relation like the relationships between people and yeah. how degrading and just insidious it is. So Dis- I, yeah. Dismantling, I think it's great.
2: dismantling- The system we've been brought up on and dispelling the myths and knowing that we can create, we can co-create, we can lift each other up, we can break bread together. Guess what? I can, matter of fact, next year, let me say it now, like next year, I'm starting to sell other people's brands, maybe not direct competition stuff, but yes, I will be collaborating with other brands and I will be intentional about it. And I will be carrying accessory lines like houseware and other things that are lifestyle to, that makes sense for walk wear to, to show other brands that might not get like that, that are dope, that are, that are great so that we can start this whole, like, um, mini case study to show like, look, this can be done. And hopefully other people lay eyes on it and say, well, I'm going to do the same thing and I'm going to do the same thing. And then it's just contagious behavior. And then that becomes powerful when it's done on a massive level. So, you know, that's the thing, each one of us doing our part and just, um, letting that amplify, I think that that's going to be the ripple effect. And it's, it's, it's don't, don't believe the lies we, we should understand, at this point in time, in this moment in history, that how many lies have been told. And it's time to create a new narrative and a true narrative. And that starts with us. And I think the best is when you listen to your heart your instincts and what you know is love like that's where I, I know I sound crazy but it's so easy like and i think that it would be such a game changer for us if we just embrace our talents our gifts and and they say it takes a village and they say that for a reason
0: absolutely collaboration <laughs> over competition that is like that is the really like subversive work and also cultural shift that we really have to put into practice yeah um, I'm so I'm so behind, and you're right. It, it spans so many different fields because it's such a pervasive, like I think, cultural crisis of just like we're so kind of atomized and separated from each other. This kind of like you can't sit with us attitude that's really just isolating each o- us from one another, and I think really yeah. limiting all the all the great creative and other possibilities that are that are you know too yet to be had. Um, yeah. But yeah, you said that that was that was really well said. Um, so I did. I think you you just mentioned something that you're working on. We wanted to close this episode by giving you a space to talk about any projects you're working on, like anything exciting that's coming through um, that you want to speak to. Uh
2: yeah, so right now I'm contributing to something called Streetwear Essentials with Parsons and Complex and Yellow Bricks. Uh, learning and I'm also doing a teaching right now. I do workshops called Be Your Own Brand and Build Your Own Brand BYOB. I am doing those uh, as a consultant and working in tandem with Department of Education at a, a school in Brooklyn, a high school, and I am excited about those programs. I'm also, you know, walkaware.com it's been our best year yet and we're going to be launching next year we're going to start storytelling through our brand we're starting out with um, the starting five which is our original five pieces our original five players you know everything is in fives but it's starting from the beginning and storytelling from there Uh, and then we are also doing Um, Walker Gym. So I'm actually going back to my Walker Gyms this year and I really miss them. So we'll be doing a lot of video series and a lot of content around Walker Gyms and I'm starting on wellness. Well, I've been on this wellness journey for quite a while, but uh, you'll see a lot of content coming in a wellness store as well. So, you know, those are some of the things, and I'm working on my memoir book, so that'll be my second book. The audio book is about to drop for Walker, where, uh, for Walker Gyms, Get Your Ass Off the Couch, so look for that. That's coming, like, like really soon. So I uh, think I was trying to make this Christmas delivery, but I'm not sure if that's going to happen. But if it doesn't happen for Christmas, it will be ready in January.
0: Wow. That definitely, that get your ass off the couch thing. Not, like definitely something I need and uh, lots of other people in my life need it. So you're really like, just have totally like expanded and- it seems like your brand and what you represent has like flowered into so many different areas: education, fashion, wellness. So it's really exciting to hear just how dynamic you've continued to be um, as years have gone by. So with that, I think we're at the end of our time. We want to thank you, April Walker, so much for um, making the time to speak with us.
1: Thank you so much for having us. This was. Uh, this was Truly a dream come true for us and everything you said, like I I personally I'm sure Marcel too, I will think about this a lot. So thank you for your presence. Um and, and stay in touch. Thank you so much. No style. Talk to you
0: soon and have a good
2: weekend. You Alrighty, bye.